Welcome to Behind the Standards with United Rentals. This is the podcast where we discuss construction safety, typically trench excavation and confined space safety, but also other topics that deal with general job site safety as well. I am Rick Plosinski, Customer Training Specialist, and with me are Ross DeRound and Scott Rand. Ross, please give the listeners a brief introduction. Sure, Rick. Uh, I'm Ross Darwin. Uh, I'm the Sales and Marketing Director for the Fluid Solutions Group. I've been in the business for 18 years and really excited to be here to talk to the group about dewatering it. Thank you, Ross. And Scott? Thanks, Rick. Yes, sir. Um, I'm a region product development manager for our engineered solutions uh, in the Mid-Atlantic District. So for us, that means from uh, Maryland, D.C. area, just down to Georgia. And I'm responsible for our engineered shoring designs and solutions for that area. I've been with United Rentals for nine years, started out with our equipment side for two and then transferred over to our trench safety side. And prior to that, I actually grew up in the construction industry doing site work. So it was a good segue as far as going into that trench safety side of things, of having that experience of operating an excavator and also being the man in a, you know, in a ditch with a shovel at the same time. So looking forward to this discussion as well. So our conversation will hopefully be informative and educational so that we can help you avoid injuries and fatalities while on the job site and maybe be just a little bit entertaining. Now, today, our conversation is going to focus on dewatering and shoring applications in wet conditions. When these conditions are present on a job site, the right solution is vital for effective operations and employee safety. So, Ross, what conditions dictate the need for a dewatering application? Well, Rick, there's actually a couple of uh, scenarios. You know, one being probably the most common is, is groundwater dewatering, but you also have open sump dewatering in which um, you know pumps are used to, to maintain rainwater or you know surface water that could be coming to to an excavation. Okay, so what kind of different dewatering options are available? So th- there's you know, quite a few different options. You know, for open sump de- uh, pumping. You know, centrifugal pumps or submersible pumps can be used to, to maintain you know, a dry hole. Taking the approach of groundwater management, there's a couple of various options that can vary from site to site or job to job. And you know, one of the most common we see is well point dewatering, in which we would install jet points and install well points to manage the groundwater. For certain applications where um, space or, or ground area is critical, deep well, or for deeper excavations, we can install deep wells. Uh, and then the third alternative to that is that we have uh, actually a trenching machine that lays a sock in the ground called sock dewatering, in which we lay a permeable uh, filter in the ground, uh, manage the, the groundwater through pumps and, and the permeable filter in the ground. So do these needs vary with different regions of the country or North America, perhaps? No, geography plays a, a big part in the selection of dewatering method. Um, you can go into your, say, Florida area there, which is basically a big sandbar in which you, no matter all the methods would properly work. Uh, well point being a probably, well point sock being a probably the most common methods there. Um, but as you, you know, travel, you know, into the, the central or mountainous regions, you get into, um, layers of rock and impermeable, uh, soil conditions, which you have to use alternative methods, which would be deep well and drilling, drilling deep wells and such. You know, so when you get into coastal areas, your various methods work. So it's really important to understand the geography and work with somebody local in the market that understands the, the, the geology of the area to um, to better recommend the most efficient method of dewatering for an application. Yeah, to piggyback off of uh, the different 
regions and how they can vary from a water standpoint. Just primarily I've dealt with the coastal regions and being close to the, to the coast, being close to uh, uh, tidal situations and in a lot of sandy soil conditions. So you're going to be dealing with permeable type soil conditions where that water is going to transfer easily through the soil versus uh, now I've worked in areas, uh, you know, in inland with mountainous regions with a lot of clay. That's going to be uh, different water levels expected. And then at the same time, also the way that water transfers through the soil is going to be different as well. So having that ability to deal with a local representative is going to be a, play a big, big impact on the dewatering perspective. Yeah. And just to mention, too, that, you know, we mentioned regions and I kind of talked a little bit about, you know, different areas in the country. But you know, one thing I want to point out is that it can vary in a city in itself. You know, uh, if you think of take a, a Houston, Texas, for example, um, you may be in the southern part of Houston, Texas and have a geology that you have to dewater in a, in a specific way. But then as you move north and travel north, it can completely change. So, you know, working with somebody local to the market, as I mentioned earlier, is key because they understand you know, what the ground conditions are and the proper methods to apply uh, in specific areas, even in a, in, a, in, a, in a small geography as a specific city. So what do contractors need to know before they create a dewatering plan? You know, so one of the first things you want to take a look at is a bore log. You know, a bore log is going to give you um, the various layers of soil conditions. So you'll determine, you know, the, the movement of water um, underground. And you also want to know your water table. You know, the first thing you want to do is when you're looking, evaluating your bore log, determine if dewatering is needed. In a lot of cases, as I mentioned, say Houston, you know, as you go to the northern part of Houston, uh, you can have a, an excavation in the ground and dig 30 feet before you even hit any type of groundwater. So just knowing where your water table is, then knowing your, your, your various soil levels and conditions to determine the, the most efficient method of dewater. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And then also knowing if you're in a tidal situation or uh, sometimes seasons vary as far as it may be a wet season in, in that particular region. And that could cause the water table to be higher than normal. So if the bore logs or that geotechnical report was taken by a firm, engineering firm, you know, six months prior, then it could be different as opposed to where the actual water levels are at that time. So having those bore logs is critical in being able to identify what type of water conditions are going to be present. So is it necessary to dewater and then excavate, or is it more prudent to excavate than dewater? Dewater, I would say dewatering and then excavate. Certain situations, um, may require or require installing dewatering system several days to a week prior to beginning the excavation. And this gives the dewatering system time to lower the water table to that desired depth because we've worked with situations where there's a lot of water present or a very high water table and the excavation is going to be deeper, you know, 15, 20, 30 foot deep. And if that dewatering system is installed the day of and then that excavation begins, you 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 lose the ability of that water table to be lowered to the desired depth. And then it, it, it almost is, is counterproductive because you've installed a big watering system, but it hasn't had time to do the work that it's created to do. Absolutely. We see various things on projects where people try to wait to the, to the last minute and try to you know, cut cost and eliminate a dewatering system and start to do an excavation with hopes of being able to complete the project. And you know, we frequently get called out on a job where it's stalled and delayed due to the fact that they have to you know, come up with an emergency dewatering plan to try and you know, keep their job going. You know, and as um, you know, Scott talked to, you know, that now we have to kind of engineer a system to fit the need based upon the conditions that we have and the job site access we have 
And then, you know, you're going to have the drawdown time. So once we event, you get a system installed and done, you're going to have to wait either one to one day to three weeks for a certain specific area to be completely dewatered to get you back into the excavation. So starting off with a plan uh, for dewatering and installing it is not only you know, a safer method of going about it, but it's also a means of insurance to make sure that you can keep your job you know, on task and, and the productivity level continuing to move forward. So it sounds like shoring needs are quite seriously affected by the amount of water that's on a job site. Absolutely, Rick. Um, a couple things that it's going to do there as far as how the water or hydrostatic pressure can affect a shoring recommendation, so to speak. So if you've got a lot of water present, it's going to require us to increase the amount of loading pressures that we will be anticipating on a shoring system itself caused by that hydrostatic pressure. So it could eliminate the possibility of, if, say, we were going to go in and excavate and we were planning to use hydraulic vertical shores as a shoring solution. But if you add water to the equation, uh, the competent person on site is going to have to classify that soil as a C80. That would then result in not being able to use hydraulic vertical shores. Um, another instance will be uh, for sheet and embracing system. If you could, we could originally plan for one ring of brace and maybe using sheet piles and have five or ten foot of tow. And then that same excavation, should we add hydrostatic pressure to that plan, then we're all going to have to over-engineer the design and at that point put, you know, two or three or even four rings of bracing just to be able to uh, deal with that added pressure that we're, we're putting on the system. Uh, another example would be if you're using trench boxes or a slide rail system, uh, say you were using 20 or 24-foot links in those, those panels. Again, the pressure by, added by that hydrostatic pressure could cause us to have to shorten those panel links. So switch down to 20 or 16 or even 10-foot panels just to be able to have a system that's strong enough to support that loading that the hydrostatic pressure is going to add to the system. Yeah, also, too, from the dewatering perspective, understanding the shoring design and the, and the way the shoring is going to be applied uh, affects the, way, the means and method of dewatering. So it may be a, a specific type of you know, ground clearance, clearance that's needed for access of equipment and such. So, you know, working together with a contractor on a shoring plan as well as a dewatering plan is, is equally important. Um, so it ensures that everybody's on the same page and, um, you know, can keep the job moving forward. And this kind of circles back to that question before as to ensuring that we know what type of water to expect, either through a ge- geotechnical report or through a test pit, so to speak, because if you have that information, then you can you know, work with a team and decide, okay, we're expecting these type of conditions. So based on these conditions, then we can put together the property watering plan and then the proper shoring plan, because it may be a situation where you could use a standard trench box or something that's covered under tabulated data that you can almost get off the shelf, so to speak. Or it may be if it's a wet condition, then we may have to revert back to something like a slide roll system or a sheet pile system to be able to account for that that added water that's going to be present. So, Ross, it really does sound like shoring and dewatering applications are kind of dependent on each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. They, they go hand in hand. If, you, if water is present, you can't get anything done uh, without you know, a good dewatering plan and the proper shoring applied to, to the job. We can design almost any type of system any type of loading on the system. So we could design a system with 100% water on the outside of that system. But that being said, is that the most effective solution? So if we did design it like that, we might have a system that's over-engineered. It's going to be over-costly from a rental standpoint or from an equipment standpoint, if whatever type of equipment you're using. It could be over-costly from a labor 
and install perspective. So it's going to be additional time and materials as far as installing that, that system itself, where it's a balancing act of, okay, well, we can eliminate this water and this hydrostatic pressure on the outside of the system, and then we can reduce the or change the type of shoring system that we're going to be using for this particular situation. And then it would be a balancing act of save time, save money, decrease from a cost standpoint, and then also making sure that we're going to be a safe excavation at the same time. So it would probably be best to create a shoring plan after dewatering as opposed to before. I would say primarily is, again, we circle back to the very first topic as far as knowing what to expect. If you know what to expect, then you can plan accordingly as to, yes, we need to have a dewatering plan in place and then proceed with what type of shoring solution to will be most effective or most efficient. If you were to put in your shoring application after dewatering, could that possibly lower the cost of that particular plan? You know, the way the way engineering works is engineering designs a shoring plan based off of dewatering. So, like shoring has a plan before the dewatering is ever you know is even determined if it's going to be applicable or not. So, it's it's not the process isn't necessarily hey we go dewater then design the shoring plan. You know, the shoring plan is always designed. And then we go and essentially design a dewatering plan if it's needed. The shoring plan comes before the dewatering plan. Let me ask this then. So would it be best to simply create a dewatering or a shoring plan based on worst case scenario? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the way we look at uh, design a plan. Is you know, We have to take in all factors uh, and, and determine what the best best case scenario is. You know, if you if you come into a plan trying to you know, cut corners or, or cut costs, you know, you could have an instance where you wait, you know, one to three weeks, like I mentioned, and come to find out when you start to excavate that you still have your water coming in. And that's when alternative methods are, you have to really make job site modifications and delays and, and, and shut things down to, to alter the, the site. So, you know, we always recommend to, to come together, set a plan, and design a plan that we're all confident in working. And then that way we can you know, be assured that it'll be you know, a workable hole once the excavation begins. You know, with, with that even being said, a big part of you know, working with a local company that understands the geography and geology of the area is that you know, dewatering applications don't always go as planned. And so you have to have expertise that understands ways to do alternative means to, to actually dry a particular um, excavation out. So. That's what it's really good to have somebody involved early on in the process and discuss the best methods to, to move the path forward. And in that way, if there's ever any modifications that need to be made, they are already in the loop of what's happening and they can make recommendations to, to ultimately you know, help the customer out in that situation. You know, we see a, a lot of applications that we come on sometimes where customer owns their own type of equipment or they just kind of rented the system, expecting it to work, and we kind of come out to a job site, and we have to troubleshoot their installation. Uh, sometimes we're able to do that and you know recommend some tweaks or modifications that are minimal, but other times we have to really kind of start from scratch and remove the complete system and install it you know, um, the proper way to, to achieve the result. So you know, kind of all kinds of different varying factors there. But, Scott, to your point, over-engineering might not be the best method on the shoring side. And so, Ross, what is the one thing that you typically see in the field that contractors usually don't know about dewatering that you wish that they understood 
before they started to seek out that dewatering plan? I'd have to say soil conditions. Uh, in a lot of cases, um, there's a lot of assumptions made. You know, a contractor doesn't have the bore log or a bore log, the, the bore site is you know, a significant distance away from the excavation. So they just make assumptions that dewatering is needed. And so when we go and partner with a contractor to look at it, there's a lot of guessing because none of us know exactly what's underground. Um, you know, seen installations in which, you know, we were, we were asked to do a specific installation and we jet points down. And it just so happens that at, at the bottom of the excavation was a clay layer in which points were set. So, you know, knowing the soil conditions is, is the first and foremost step that we have to get you know, good information to design the property watering system. And, and it can't be a shortcut. And if it is, you're playing a gambling game to see if it will or won't work. And Scott? I would say, again, soil conditions. I, I, just to, to reiterate what Ross was saying, though, if you've got the engineer's soils report and geotechnical report, that's going to be the biggest help that we can have. And another thing a contractor can do, if they're already working on that site, if it's not a bit, so to speak, then if they can dig a test pit, because that's going to be the most accurate way of actually identifying, hey, this is what we're going to get into when we start to excavate. So having that ability, if you've got equipment on site or if you've got personnel on site, Digging a test pit is going to be a great, great method of uh, determining how to proceed as well. Yes, and from Scott's point, a test pit is, is helpful on both sides. You know, um, and, and a lot of times, you know, where, where a bore, bore log uh, is not available, you know, we see contractors do just that, and we'll get calls to come out on site to look at a test pit, and we can come and evaluate, you know, what a test pit looks like and where the water's coming from, and kind of determine the best means of dewatering from that in the event that a bore log is available for us. Excellent. Any other thoughts, guys? You know, you know one thing I, I want, I want to, you talked a little bit about, you know, preparation for the job is, you know, I mentioned already the importance of bore logs and knowing the soil conditions. Another component is timeline. You know, what, what time, what timeline are we working with? And we have to determine, you know, the timeline for an installation as well as the drawdown timeline. As I mentioned, it could be you know, one day all the way up to three weeks. So having an understanding of the timeline for scheduling purposes for the contractor is important. Uh, another uh, component of dewatering is access. So whenever we're just installing dewatering equipment, it's important that we think about access points for the job that needs to take place in the excavation so we can design around that to where the contractor has no limitations uh, in, in working within their excavation. And then the last thing I'd say is the level of service that a contractor wants. We have there's various levels that we see out there. Some contractors turnkey their complete installation in a, you know, kind of op- we offer troubleshooting assistance for those contractors. In some instances, um, a contractor would like supervision in which they utilize their own crew. Uh, and then we will provide supervision to oversee the installation to make sure it goes properly. And then the third level of service is a complete turnkey where a contractor can go focus on other work, keep their people working on other tasks and or projects while a, a, a supplier comes in and does a complete turnkey uh, installation and management of the project. So kind of thinking about what level of service makes the most sense for their project is another means of you know, working with a supplier. Yeah, I agree with that 100%, Ross. And then it, it also, if you've got contractors coming in from out of, out of town, I know I've dealt with that in the coastal regions a lot, and they may just not be comfortable with dealing with water. So they want to pass on that responsibility or that, that that portion of the project to an expert that deals with that on a day-in and day-out basis. Or it could be a local contractor that deals with it and is comfortable with it and may just 
want the system to install themselves. Uh, I agree with that 100%. And I see it, again, day in, day out, depending on local teams or if uh, you've got other contractors coming in from out of town. One last point that I want to make uh, is you know, the importance of a plan. Whether you think you're going to need the plan implemented or not, I recommend always reaching out to a supplier and developing a dewatering plan that, that would fit the need in the event that you should need it. That way, we're not working with a, a contractor to come out to a job and kind of hurry up and put something together and having further delays. So a little proactive planning can prevent a reactive situation, and, and, and the supplier can be ready to, to dewater if the event needs because they're a part of the planning process. So always reach out whether it's needed or not to begin the discussion and, to be, and learn methods of dewatering and the most efficient way to accomplish it. But I also wanted to speak to, as regards, I feel like a lot of this conversation has been towards the shoring system and, make or, and dewatering as it relates to efficiency and the best method to, to go about doing it. But the primary reason for getting the shoring and dewatering plan right is to ensure the safety of employees uh, they're going to be working in and around that excavation that's taking place. If a contractor is can reduce the hazards of a work environment um, by taking the proper time to plan and consult with the shoring and dewatering experts, and the project is completed safely, then our primary goal has been achieved. Obviously, we want to do it in the most efficient manner possible, but at the same time, if everyone is safe and goes home safe, then we've done our jobs. This has been Behind the Standards with United Rentals. If you have any questions about this topic or have any suggestions about other topics that you may want to be discussed, feel free to send an email to urtspodcast at ur.com. For additional content and training information, go to www.trenchsafetyevents.com. On behalf of Ross, Scott, and myself, thanks for listening. Have a great day and stay safe.